Applications for the Techstars Tech Central Sydney Accelerator Class of 2024 are closing on the 22nd of May. I'm Kirsten Hunter, the Managing Director of Techstars Sydney, and I'm looking for diverse and unstoppable founders who are using technology to solve the world's biggest problems to join this Accelerator cohort. The 12 successful businesses will get access to our 13-week mentor-driven accelerator, $120,000 US investment, and access to the Techstars network for life. Head to our Accelerator webpage to learn more and to apply. Hi, I'm Adam Spencer, founder of the Day One Network, which is bringing the history of the Australian startup ecosystem to you. I believe in founders. It's why I do everything I do at Day One and our media company, W2D1 Media. And that's why the Day One Network exists, to create helpful content for founders. We've got some great shows in development, but a large part of what we do couldn't be done without support from our partners and sponsors. And I couldn't be happier than to be working with NTP, who get community better than any other technology recruitment company out there. A Newcastle company like mine, NTP, are invested in seeing the growth of the local tech community in Newcastle, Sydney, and more broadly, Australia. So thank you, NTP, for helping us bring helpful content to founders and the startup community in Australia. Back to the interview. Hi, I'm Adam Spencer and welcome to Day One, the podcast that spotlights Australian startups, founders, and the organizations that empower Australian entrepreneurship. We go back to the beginning to tell the story of Australia's most inspiring founders and how they built their companies. You're listening to a special interview series as part of a documentary W2D1 is producing about the history of the Australian startup ecosystem. On the episode today, we have... Oh yeah, g'day, Steve Baxter here from uh, 1013 Early Stage, fully aligned tech startup investment syndicate working out of Brisbane. That was nice and succinct. When did you first get involved in the ecosystem? Probably before we had all this vocabulary around it as well. Yeah, look, well I started my first, it became an ecosystem probably 20 years after I got involved, I want to say. Um, I first got started in entrepreneurship. Um, back in 1994 when I was a 23-year-old full-time soldier working out of Adelaide. Decided to install 14 telephone lines into my bedroom, one of my bedrooms, and uh, started to up ISP. So that was um, that was all um, fully funded, I suppose. It, it, we call it bootstrapping nowadays. Um, back then we just called it taking a home loan deposit and risking it. So that's what we did there, and we grew that to be quite a substantial business, probably the seventh or eighth largest internet service provider in Australia at the time. So, not 94. This is probably going to be a really silly question, but what did the ecosystem or what did the community, in terms of you know the entrepreneurial community, look like um, from your well, perspective? It didn't. So, I was I was in Adelaide essentially. So, uh, yeah, to be quite honest, it was uh, we started a business back then. We were you know um, managing directors and business founders. The, uh, me, we were managing directors, and I had a business partner. I never knew the word uh, CEO, co-founder, or founder back then. To be quite blunt, it didn't even didn't really exist in the vocabulary. Um, we ran a retail-facing small business that turned into be quite a substantial, you know, medium-sized Australian business, I suppose. So aside from working inside my industry sector in Adelaide, and I imagine you're in Sydney, are you, Adam? Uh, a little bit north of Sydney, Newcastle. Yeah, no worries. So um, you know, essentially, if you're not in Sydney in Australia, no one really cares about you. Um, we had uh, we had thought leaders in the largest ISPs in Australia leading conversations in national newspapers, and, and we had seven times more customers and revenue than them. So, you know, if, if you're not on the East Coast, you're not in the Sydney, no one tends to give a toss about you, to be honest. 
So Adelaide, we were somewhat insular, um, not of our own choosing, but because you know I suppose that the thought centres tended to be more people who weren't someone they could drive to. Um, and you know, it's such we, we did a lot of networking in amongst our community. I, I helped start something. I, I helped out because um, there was a lot of competitors. So when I started that business, there was probably I don't know, I was probably the, the, the 20th or the 30th ISP in Australia. Uh, when I sold it, there was 1,200, and by the time I fully exited, it, there was 700, and that was over a period of about six years. So very much boom bust. It feels a bit like that now in the startup space. Everyone's jumping on that bandwagon, coming out of the woodwork all of a sudden, and being an expert. It's really quite fascinating to watch again. So uh, we did several endeavours where we had to work together as, as competitors. We had we had one real problem in our industry, and that still exists for people in that business, and that's Telstra. Um, Telstra was our biggest supplier and our biggest it was our only supplier and our biggest competitor. So we tended to band together as a competitive industry and to, to help each other out in a wholesale sense, buying power sense. To, to, for, it's not the best description, but it's, it's the best one that'll do today without a wider description. Um, and so you know, I networked a lot, and I, I suppose I, I got to understand the value of business networking because I had to go and talk to my competitors and say, you know, guys, if we keep flogging each other to death, Telford is just going to come and murder us, so we need to start working together. Well, that is hard for me to comprehend that in 94, um, there were, what did you say, 30 or 40 ISP providers already? Was that the number you said? Yeah, probably. Yeah, yeah. That, that's internet service provider, right? We're talking about the same thing here. I didn't really understand that internet was that big of a thing, even to have 30 to 40 providers. Um, and six months later, it would have been 100, and six months later, it would have been 300, and 12 months later, it would have been 600. You know, things go in cycles, things go in booms and busts, so it, it's, it's a part of the natural natural sort of uh, enterprise, you know, day-to-day or year-to-year, decade-to-decade thing. Things go up and things go down. But literally, there was 1,200 at the peak. Within like four or five years, it was 1,200. What um, what motivated you to, to decide to put install, what was it, 30 phone lines? It was 14 to start with, yeah. So we, we took, took it up to, to 30 in our house before we moved out and actually got a real premises. But what made you think, oh, I want to start a, an ISP? You can ask that question a lot, and, and it, it's hard to remember the actual motivating factor. I um, my, my wider background is I, I grew up in central Queensland. I pretty well failed high school, left at uh, grade 11, joined the army as a full-time soldier at 15 when they recruit 15-year-olds. So my first job was as a... Uh, so I carried a rifle for nine years for this country. So uh, as a soldier, um, but we were mostly a peacetime army at that point in time. Um, whilst I enjoyed, um, whilst I had immense pride in that occupation, it was a pretty boring job, to be quite honest. There's nothing nothing worse than not being allowed to do what you're trained to do. I um, mean, you know, things changed about five years after I got out. Things got a little bit hot. I started uh, learning about computers. I'd have been a bit of a fascination with technology. So I uh, did some courses, uh, learned about computers, learned about programming, installed this weird thing called Linux on, on, a, on a spare PC we had at home, and um, realised that you could plug 14 modems into the back of this thing and, and, and people could dial up and you could, you know, you could run a business. So it was um, a really good mate from Shark Tank, Glenn Richards. He has a, a saying, which is, an entrepreneurial seizure moment. So it's like the, the experienced technician who thinks he can run a business. It was something along those lines, I suppose. It seemed it seemed really easy, and it seemed the the funny part was is you know I was going to these computer user groups, and and I managed to look over the shoulder one night of someone who successfully got the windowing system for Linux installed, which was back then no mean feat. There's only 120 floppy disks, just to give you some idea. I saw someone using a web browser, and I knew instantly the world was going to change. I can vividly remember where I was. It was a, it was it was a bloke's garden. It was a shed in his backyard where he set his computers up. And I remember just thinking, I've got to get into this. You could instantly see what was going to happen. 
so by the time I'd actually convinced my now wife then fiance to spend our eleven thousand dollar home loan home loan deposit, this one homes were costing one hundred twenty five grand in Adelaide. So you know, we almost had we almost had a home, right? That um, I was going to take all this money, buy some computer bits, put it together in the bedroom, and and hey presto, and I hadn't at that stage even used a web browser. Huh. Wow. Um, was there anything that, apart from that, you know, learning the importance of networking um, that come out of that, what was it, 94 to roughly 01 kind of time, uh, that any lesson that you've taken out of that that has served you really well um, in, in subsequent ventures? Yeah, there was, I suppose. So it was the importance of, I've taught lots of things. So, you know, the, the importance of being able to understand a set of books. Um, at least you know, be a pretty decent cash flow accountant or bookkeeper, if, if, if nothing else. Um, the importance of team. I came out of the army. I knew the importance of team. I knew the importance of briefing people well and other bits and pieces and having plans. It taught me to hate monopolies. And, you know, Telstra was such a, and still is such a corrosive force in that industry. It's incredible. Because we've given ourselves another monopoly with MBN. Isn't that a stupidest idea ever? Excuse me. So, you know, it did, did teach me a lot. Um, you know, basic business operations. It taught me a lot about people. We went through a mini recession in that business, and none of you know probably very few of the people, the younger people, would actually have any clue what happens during a recession. But if you own a business and you don't sleep because of it, you don't sleep for months because all of a sudden you can't pay people. Literally, like you know, it, it's it, it's it's debilitating. And I think God people haven't gone through it, but it's also leading to um, it's also leading to some pretty crazy economic behaviour in, in the market at the moment, and it has for the last sort of you know 10, 15 years. You know, you had that massive realization around web browsers and the internet that got you started in SENet. Obviously, the, the startup ecosystem didn't exist at that point, or, or even any kind of. Were there any precursors that you noticed? That you, because because what changed between kind of O one start of pipe networks to to founding? You know, about ten years later, River City Labs and realizing that we need to start a co working space. We need to get entrepreneurs together. Like, what changed in that ten years to? switch you from purely entrepreneur, small business owner to this world of founders and startups and uh, high growth companies? Yeah, well, for me, I didn't really want to run a business again, to be honest. I mean, I, I, tend, to, I tend to buy into them quite hard. I tend to treat them quite seriously. And, and as a result, joyfully consuming, but, but probably to my detriment. So, um, and so I sort of knew that. So with, with, with SCNet, my first business, you know, we worked quite hard in that business and managed to sell that with Pipe Networks. Similarly, you know, we, we sort of went went a thousand miles an hour and, you know, to, and, and jeopardized health uh, because it not, you shouldn't do that. I could have done that smart, don't get me wrong. And so I you know, all through that, so that, that's, you know, on a personal level, that is, well, I didn't want to do that again, to be quite honest. I didn't want to, I didn't want the adrenaline and it is, it's adrenaline, and it's, it's a weird background adrenaline of, you know, working the sort of 70, 80 hours a week and, and all the rest of it. And, you know, so, you know, it's a lot of fun being an investor, to be honest. So, you know, being able to, to sit back and to hear people's hopes, dreams, aspirations and other bits and pieces and, and be able to fund them and, and, and get on that journey and, and you know, and, and back them not just with capital but with, you know, with experience and networks and mentorship and whatever you want to call it. Um, but that, that's personally, but, but what changed in the meantime was, I mean, a bunch of things changed. I mean, essentially, computers got really cheap, networks got really cheap. You know, whereas, you know, when we did pipe networks, we had to put into place, like, you know, our mail infrastructure for our business was, you know, a couple of big honking um, exchange servers and two data centers. It was like a two, three hundred thousand dollar investment to support about sort of 40 staff, if you know what I mean. And now it's like, what, 11 bucks a month, they'll offer 365? So, so what changed was the commoditization of computers and essentially the access to networks. So that allowed a lot less capital to be deployed in order to get a similar outcome. 
Um, and that's bad for Australia. I mean, there's nothing good in that statement for Australia. So um, it, used to, it used to protect us, and, and now it's an absolute element of risk for us. What, what made you decide to um, actually go ahead and start River City Labs? So I um so uh, we started Pop Networks in 2001. We listed that in 2005. I left there as a full-time exec in 2008. Went and worked in Google in California for about a year. Returned to Australia on the sale of Pop Networks um, fully by sort of early 2010 when we executed the sale. So I got back and relit some networks, and I wanted to be out of the telco space. Then I uh, started to do a little bit of dabbling and met some people, helped them out with a bit of capital, a bit of experience. I found myself going to Sydney more and more to talk to people. I, I um, saw what had um, started down at Fishburners and Harris Street down there in, in Ultimo and thought, well, that's pretty cool. I'll go back to Brisbane and find the Fishburners in Brisbane. There was nothing really there. There was a bunch of really drab spaces, probably you know, best called incubators of the day, run by universities. You know, incubators are the things that keep babies alive, not that they you know what I mean. It's, I think it's a really poor term for a business, to be honest. And then I thought, well, okay, how hard can it be? It's some office space and, and you know, a little bit of a flexible mindset and let's get into it. It turned out it was very hard. So especially in a town where everyone's got a second and third spare bedroom and, and the traffic ain't that bad. And no one really gives us stuff about um, cheap desk space, right? So we had to pretty, we had to alter what we did there pretty um, pretty radically. Uh, what, ex- what exactly about fish burners, what was it that you found really attractive about that that, that made you go, well, we need to do this, we need to, you know, do this in Brisbane? Um, to me, it had a clubhouse feel, and there was people in there. It was a bit noisy. It was a bit had a bit of a bizarre feel about it, as you know, a market bazaar, and it felt like there was energy. And so I wanted to sort of replicate that. It was, it was a little bit of exciting just to, to look at you know, people being busy and, and a little bit noisy. And, and the stated goal was to bring together investors and startups. Either speaking from a Brisbane, Queensland point of view, or, or nationally, what do you think some of the gaps are that that are in the ecosystem at the moment? Like, what, what's wrong with how it all works maybe and, and where can we improve the cafe in terms of the ecosystem having been involved in it around this space for so long it's, it's this thing that people want to buy into. it feels like the soft cuddly thing if you know what i mean and, it, and it's good that we can talk it about in those sort of terms but in the, the day it's about creating an environment where we encourage lots of risk and hopefully lots of risk comes lots of success so also for my sins i spent a year as chief entrepreneur up here in queensland um in sort of 2018 I got to carry this amazing business card around. I went and visited everyone in the state and purposely kept out of the southeast Queensland corner because there was lots going on, so did a lot of travel. So the, the term ecosystem I find frustrating because to, to me, you know, business is about creating wealth, creating wealth in every sense of the term, creating wealth for the, the owners of the businesses and, and the people who work in them and, and the community in general. And then you have to understand who, who, who can do what um, in, this entire, um, in, in this entire segment of the market. And most of this stuff falls to federal governments, for example. So most of the stuff I think is about less regulation. Um, because to me, that there's very little government, for example, can do to affect an operating business. So there's, there's very little non-punitive things a government can do to affect an operating business. But the one thing, if, if, if you want to change how businesses operate, is you encourage more people to compete. Because the one thing a CEO surely fears is loss of revenue. I think we've seen from the banking inquiry, they don't even fear doing the wrong thing and going to jail, right? But they have a far bigger fear. Every CEO, every business leader has a fear of loss of market. And so the way you, and, and you can't mandate that through through things. The way you do that is just to encourage more people to get into business. So for me, everything I go to when I talk about the ecosystem is how do we encourage more people to get into business? Um, so all my answers are, really quite bland and they're not as demanding as a lot of others 
and but they are also born of 25 years of entrepreneurship and, and, and probably close to about 12 years of, of trying to make things actually work. I can list them out if you want. Oh, please do. And But just before you do, you beat me to the answer because earlier when I mentioned the word ecosystem and, and you said it um, back to me in an answer, I, I sensed um, that you were saying it through your teeth um, and, and that you didn't quite like it. So thank you for... <laughs> For, for answering that and that's that's a great a great answer i don't even like the term ecosystem and i've said it so much that even saying it like it hurts me to say it at this point um but but i can't think of any other way to really describe it succinctly um to what we're trying to build this this environment that we're trying to build that will enable more entrepreneurship to happen yeah well well exactly that's why i've used you know i've been using terms like market sector and, and focus areas and you know, other 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 fluffy stuff um because to me it, it, it's it's a it's one of these fuzzy words it should be okay but it just covers so much crap and people tend to get a, oh it's because i'm doing it for the eco it's like the word failure the fact word failure is so freaking abused um it covers so much stuff and it, it's just the, the wrong approach if you know what i mean so um but you know if we are talking talking about ecosystems if we had the camera turned on you'd see my air quotes um, the you know the, the things we need to do to encourage more people to start businesses, which is essentially what this is, right? Is yeah. we would actually make it. Now this is a very motherhood and milk statement. I tell this to politicians all the time. They think I'm taking the piss out of them. So if we want more people to start businesses, we should make it easier for them to start businesses. So there, there's a level of regulation which is point stupid. So let's get into some of that. But, but still the things around employee share option plans. So back in 2009 that the mind-numbingly stupid ALP government at the time um, essentially modified the employee share options arrangement and pretty well stopped them for six years. It didn't change until the coalition put, somewhat put it back, not quite all the way back in 2015. So, and it's still, and it's still not, it's not as easy as it could be. So, um, making it really easy for businesses to issue instead of paying their staff cash to issue them equity in the success of that enterprise, removing any impediment to people investing in the startups. So you know, we have a country where you can lose your house on a horse race, but not a startup. So, you know, about making the ability to access capital for startups a lot easier. So there's something out there called the 2012 rule, for example. So it basically says that every 12 months, you can approach 20 people to invest up to $2 million in your business without with, with a very, very almost uh, regulation-free environment. Why don't we just increase that to five million bucks, for example, and 40 investors? So there's there's a lot of very simple things that we can do. One of the good things that Malcolm Turnbull did, and I have got no love for his prime ministership, and I, I think that his NISA plan back in 2000, and I wanna say 16 or 17, National Innovation and Science Agenda, uh, which was essentially a $2.1 billion plan, of which $1.9 billion was lollies to universities. And I think the university sector is a, is a net negative for innovation in this country when it comes to um, startups. So I have a real problem with the university sector. But one of the good things you had out of that was the direct the the, the Corporations Act changes. So you brought in um, changes to bankruptcy, contractual law, so facts, so a bunch of other things to take us more towards US Chapter 11. And if you wonder why I'm talking about you know bankruptcy and stuff, the reality is that most of these businesses fail. Most of these startups don't work. So what we want, and the people, but the people who go through that process need to tidy it up, need to pay the creditors out, pay the staff, do the right thing, but get back into the game as fast as possible with as few penalties as possible because they've just had one hell of an education. So all that stuff you brought in there, which had such a small impact on the budget, if any, to be honest, it was all regulatory change, removing regulation in a lot of cases, um, 
was, was is really really quite good. The other good thing about the, the only other good thing about NISA in, in that uh, from that from that program was the ESIC stuff. Uh, um, so early stage innovation company tax. Once again, this is about access to capital. So this is about giving tax incentives to investors to invest in very early stage potentially risky companies. So um, I think it was a good start, and we, we can definitely move the boundaries on ESICs. We can make the, the the time tests and the revenue tests and other bits and pieces, so that it could encompass more businesses, not less. Um, but otherwise, I think those those two are good things. So that's you know access to capital, how how to run start a business, um, bringing in talent. Access to talent is a huge thing. It's one of the best plans I had uh, was that where I had a dinner one night with uh, it was the old industry minister um, Ian McFarlane. Um, and he literally brought people together asking about how we how do we, how do we attract Peter Thiel to Australia and what do we have to do, was, was he was asking us. So, you know, it was really good that I reached out to industry. But in, in, in a moment of, of, of sheer brilliance, and I've actually, he's mentioned it since, and he said he doesn't recall saying this. I call it the Mike Cannon Brooks plan. And he said, why don't we just write to the top 100 graduates, IT graduates of the top 200 universities in the world and invite them to come in a really cheap, easy pathway every year. So access to access to the right skills, and, and, and we shouldn't be picking those winners. Providing they're high tech, young, well trained. You know, don't don't preface. It's most likely only software because that's where the world's going. But don't don't preface rockets or hydrogen. Excuse me, what the latest folly that is for Christ's sakes. So just preface young, high tech, highly skilled, and then let the market work it out. So that's some of my rants. So I probably probably monologued a bit too much on you there, uh, Adam. Sorry about that. No, that was amazing. Um, in a perfect world, like if you were in charge of everything, what what are the top three things you would implement to, to make this country uh, more competitive and and make entrepreneurship easier for people? I'd reduce the price of energy. And I'll give you a very unpopular answer. I'm going to do that. That's how we've done it in the past. That's how we should be doing it right now. You know, the, the one stable thing that underpins our entire economy is energy, and to make it expensive and unreliable will not see my daughters live a healthy a wealthy life in, in, in later years that's just going to set your audience off because you know this this ecosystem is basically full of raving lefties um when it comes to tech startups i, I think i've sort of covered it there you know I, I would make access to capital drippingly easy so you you, you may be aware have you heard of esvclp before early stage venture capital limited partnerships basically the, the, the investors into vc firms get Capital gains tax-free uh, out of that firm, out of those investments. There's a whole bunch of rules around that. There's a whole bunch of things. It's got to be Australian businesses, and it's got to be this and that. And there's a bunch of rules there. And, and if people listen to this, they go, "That's not right." You know, it's not in all cases, but for but essentially, if you're granted ESVCLP status you, as a venture fund, you get to return. Uh, you get to pass through the capital gains without, without you know, capital gains tax-free to investors. Get your own tax advice. I'll, I'll also say that at the end. And which is good that the government wants to encourage investments into early stage risky businesses and they will also want to build a venture capital industry but why isn't it that every other angel investor who's investing in those businesses can't get access to the same benefits without having to pay a vc firm 20 percent of the profits and two percent a year to manage it so you know i, I would really open up that if, if we care about early stage high tech risky investment i would remove the barriers i'm also a libertarian right so i'm not a huge fan of any government regulation so, but access to capital, we've already talked about access to um, making making a lot easier for businesses to start business and to do things like pay their employees and shares without having punitive tax rates applied. Access to inbound talent, I think it's quite important. And I might get explain, I think is, is, is actually really good. So that, that's probably four reasons I think, mate. I think they're all pretty important, to be honest. Okay. So between 2010 and today, 
because because a lot of people are saying you know 2012 seems to be the mark where this inverted commas ecosystem really started to gain momentum do you have any insight as to what you think maybe the, the drivers were behind that i definitely agree for the first half of the teens there somewhere that would make sense it'd be hard to argue a year either way do I have a sense what happened there? No, I think I've already mentioned it. It's it's the it's the commoditization of of access to uh, so you know it, where it used to cost say quarter of a million dollars to get a decent you know probably in the early uh, early two thousands say quarter of a million bucks at least over a hundred grand no probably probably quarter of a million bucks to have a, a decent IT setup where you could actually get some staff in an office and get things done. Um, that all of a sudden went to twenty grand, if it's that at all. And I mentioned before, so I think this is a real problem and still is a real problem for Australia because we used to be able to get access to 250,000 bucks. The, the, the poor people sitting over in a flavella in Brazil or you know, in the back blocks of Ukraine who didn't have access to much capital couldn't do that. Right now, it only costs like 11 bucks a month for an office account and you need a, a, you need a laptop and, and a mobile phone. That's achievable, right? So all of a sudden, because talents are evenly spread around the world, you know, talents are evenly spread across gender and race, and talents are evenly spread around the world, right? So essentially, we are trade exposed because there is no longer a capital barrier, and that's really—it's been urgent for about ten years, and it should only get more urgent because once you realise that, you realise how how easily we can be left behind. You mentioned earlier you don't you think universities are horrible for innovation in Australia or something along those lines, mm. um, which is which is a real bummer for me and for this series because like fifteen of our sponsors are universities, uh, so so I don't know. They're no strangers to my opinion, Adam. Put it that way. So I've been saying this for some time. I was actually on the board of Commercialisation Australia, which then became uh, Accelerating Commercialisation, and I think I was there for four board meetings, and I, and I couldn't I could not believe how much that, that federal government program was being used to keep university projects alive that the free market said they didn't want. So the way I view it is, and I actually, I actually call them a wet blanket for innovation. So they used to take too long to get the, the relevant sort of talent stream out through the universities. You know, they're teaching kids the wrong stuff for too long and not, not changing fast enough in market demands. And I appreciate universities are supposed to research as well, whatever. Um, but you know, if anyone views the amount of money we spend on R&D into universities as having a return, if that was a VC fund, you would have actually you you would have actually shot with a bullet at the managers some time ago, because for the amount that we spend, the amount we get back is is an absolute travesty. And I say this as well because they're always they rarely ever lead. So I started River City Labs because nothing was happening in Brisbane. Within 18 months, two of the universities had launched something very similar on the public purse. I was using private money. So when I say they're a net suppressant for innovation, a lot of the times that they'll go up against the private sector because they think that they should be doing it. The problem with the university is it's quite a large enterprise. The big ones call themselves sandstones. I mean, how crazy is that in a work from home world? They're proud of the fact they call sandstones for shit soaks. Because they're a big business, they think they're a smart business. But what happens is that the the government in this country, and probably as it should, because I'm a bit of a fan of the way we actually conduct funding for universities, we have the HEC system. The government underwrite the debts and the revenue of the universities. And they've just opened the doors and people will walk through, right? And they think they're clever. And I'm like, there's nothing clever about that at all. Um, but because they're a big enterprise, I think they're a, a clever enterprise. Not a chance in hell. So so for the most part, they're, they're wet blanks of innovation. Yes, they do do research and stuff. I'm not denying that. I'm talking about the, the three quarters of what a university does. So um, 
they typically produce, or they have, sorry, for the last few years been producing a very bland, entrepreneurially dull product. It's horrible talking about people with a product, but if their product is people coming out with, with degrees, then it's um, somewhat behind uh, old skilled and entrepreneurially dull. Have you researched me and understood what I did with Startup Catalyst? Startup Catalyst is about one of the only things I didn't go deep on, but I know, was Colin um, Kinner, did he have anything to do with that? He was, so Colin Kinner was my, was one of the first uh, mission leads. So I, I got that pissed off with seeing these great young kids come to universities with some you know, pretty good pretty good degrees, and they're pretty clever kids. And, and just going into absolute dead batshit boring jobs at the, you know, public service, the big banks or the, or the big corporations. Um, and that's fine, those those organisations need labour, so I'm not against that, but it, to me it was a waste. And I, I was going to Silicon Valley a lot, and I'd, I'd see young people over there who just had probably similar skills, not as good in a lot, most cases, to be honest, and, and they were working on just bigger problems. So I was like, how do I change this? And, and so I can, I can jump up and down, scream, you know, scream and shake my arms like Kermit the Frog, or I can, I can actually do something, because you know, I'm a massive complainer, but I think you need to buy your right to complain. So, um, so I started a program called Startup Catalyst. In the first year, I took uh, uh, 20 kids over. I didn't get all 20 in the end. We, we, we targeted that. I can't remember how many it got to, be honest. Um, to Silicon Valley for two weeks. We took them to Google and Twitter and Facebook and AWS and all these places and literally showed them how Americans did stuff. VC firms, the, the whole thing. Um, I didn't make the first mission that day, actually, but my uh, I was asked to go on the Shark Tank show just as it started, um, just as the mission went over. So I missed the first every year. I went in the second year's one. Um, and took 20 kids over and dropped them inside of Silicon Valley for two weeks. These companies love getting these these bright kids coming from Australia because they literally they only have their, their best scientists and computer engineers in the room. They also had their recruiters in the room too, so they were trying to recruit them, which was hilarious. And you know, in the middle there was a startup weekend, so we dropped 20 bright young future technical co-founders. It was techies only. I didn't want clueless people. I, I clueless, clueless people in the startup space drive me insane. Took them over to Silicon Valley and and literally tried to make them unemployable. Showed them that they're just as good as anyone over in America, uh, if not better. They're just working on shitty small problems, and they should lift. They should lift their horizons, lift their eyes up to the horizon, I should say. Um, so we did, we did quite a few of those over the years. I went in the second one. Um, we also subsequently did a subsequently did a startup and, uh, catalyst program for investors because I was seeing way too many angel investors, sometimes with big hearts, actually sometimes with just malice, but usually just with, with big hearts, doing the wrong thing and, and literally smothering the startups that are investing in either because of silly monetary terms, absolutely crazy non-monetary terms, which are worse than silly monetary terms. So you know, we used to take, we took a group of 12, we've done it twice, and 12 or 15 investors over, uh, to, to instead of going to you know the, the technical arms of Google, Twitter and Facebook, we went to A16Z, we went to all the, the VC firms and the investment banks and people like that, and we basically just sat down and, and, and showed them how Americans invest in startups. So yeah, so I, I think that there's a large education piece missing in Australia, and I've attempted to, to at least lead and show how we can look at filling that with the, especially with the Startup Catalyst Junior Program. Yeah, are you are you familiar with the term uh, the Aussie Mafia? Yep. Yeah, that's a similar. Like some people have pointed to that as maybe one of the catalysts for the ecosystem really starting to pick up. Having all of those Aussies that spend a lot of time over in Silicon Valley, for example, coming back and bringing that back that experience and. And knowledge that sounds like something that you've tried to you know replicate with startup catalysts in, in bringing some of that education back to to our community um i never quite viewed the aussie mafia that way i think they were very much a, a north star bunch of people who were working in silicon valley who demonstrated it was possible to move to the us and and and, and get employed and or, and or start a startup over there 
So um, I didn't quite view them the way you're saying, but I, mean, I think that they were important. The um, I think the biggest thing there, back to your question before, if I was, you know, God for a day, I had three things to do, what would I do? Um, one, one of the biggest, uh, I think one of the best things is, is the E3 visa. The, the E3 treaty trade visa between us and the US is amazing. You know, if you've got a, a, a bachelor's level of education or you've got, I think, equivalent of 12 years industry experience, I got my, I didn't have an education, I didn't finish high school. So I had to go over on the, on the, on the, the equivalent experience test for the E3 visa. You can, you can get a two-year visa, pretty well, almost infinitely renewable, uh, and they issue 10,000 things a year, and you can work and live in the US for two years. Um, and that was massive. And you know, for, so people who started doing that, um, and that was part of the US-Australia Free Trade Agreement that we brought in in the, in the later years of the Howard government, it was just incredible. So that was that was a big focus, and people doing that and doing that successfully. And now there's little there's little immigration mills. You know, you can go and set up your own company and employ yourself and this sort of stuff to make it really easy to get over there. And then I, I think you know, and I think that uh, you know, that if you wanted to actually, so if you wanted to actually supercharge this Australian tech startup scene, you'd convince. You know, and I don't want this to happen, but I, I think that you know, if you were evil and wanted to do something, you'd actually convince the Americans to cancel every last E3 visa and send all, and send all those Australians home. <laughs> Um, you know, all these people, we've got, you know, engineering directors at Facebook who've got E3 visas. You know, there's, there's some, and they'd have to come home. I don't want that to happen, right? But it's probably it's a reflection or a statement for me of how many people I believe are over there getting that experience. So how do we bring them back? Yeah, just a bit of a fun one. I ask everybody this question. You've probably been asked this a billion times. Um, what one piece of advice would you give a new founder? I'll just do it. When people pitch me ideas, I don't. Like, I got an idea to pitch, and I said, "You should just do it." Mm. And they say, "But I haven't told you the idea." <laughs> and I'm like, "Well, I'm probably not your customer, so why the hell are you asking my opinion?" So you've got to launch what you're going to do, get it in front of a customer, and let them decide, because no one else gets a say in this. So traction trumps opinion. You need to get traction. Um, other people's opinions don't count if it's working, because if it's stupid and it works, it ain't stupid. Thinking about the future of the ecosystem, are we on the right path? Are we on the wrong path? Um, what What do you think? What What needs to change? What are, What do people need to hear? Look, it's doing exceptionally well. You know, for all the talk in the last week or so about people not investing in Australia, et cetera, et cetera, you know, the whole net zero debate that's going on. Well, I, I would say that the $40 billion investment that Stripe made into Afterpay says that's a lot of crap. Excuse me. So, you know, we're actually going quite well, if you know what I mean. So. Um, so we have to be not 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 getting down on ourselves. We've just got uh, you know the, the, the Canva's been amazing, obviously Atlassian. So there are some incredible things happening. So we've probably stop beating ourselves up that we're not doing well would be a good start. But I think we have to be really careful about how fragile it is. And I'll I'll go back to that change in 2009 on employee share option plans that literally left vacant the field. It, it was it, it, it gutted the ability for Australian startups to actually pay employee share option. That's been mostly fixed. They could have gone further in fixing it, but that's you know that's a discussion around the edges. As as one example of the last election, our industry supported a political party that was going to halve the capital gains tax exemptions when you sold shares. So what it meant that investors in the tech startup space, instead of getting their fifty percent capital gains tax exemption, would get twenty five. Do you think there'd be more or less investment in this space? So I think you'd be really careful. You need to you need to look at exactly what changes to ecosystem, you know, changes to regulations will do. Thank God that government didn't get in and do that because it would have actually been an, an atomic bomb going across the sector. It wouldn't have gotten up because there would have been that much fury over it, to be honest. 
and, and so we, we have to be really, really careful with, with what we ask for. And the current debate regarding 708 investors and sophisticated high net worth investors with respect to the wealth bar about people wanting it increased is, is just mindset ludicrous. So for me, it's about things that feel good need to be thought through and the unintended consequences need to be looked at really hard because I've been in business a long time and I've seen that much done and the unintended consequences have just have, have, have debilitated sectors. So let's be very careful when we ask for the government to do something, what usually happens, and it's never usually that good, excuse me. So that being said as well, what we need to do is to continue to deregulate. There are still regulated parts of the Australian economy. We've only received another 12-month extension on, on it might have been six-month extension, I think it's now March next year, so we can still use DocuSign for various documents. So that's not permanent. Right now, it has to be re-enabled in March next year. Why is it we're still licking a stamp and, 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 and using wet ink to contract with each other? So let's push a lot of this stuff forward. Let's let's deregulate, you know, in an industry, in an industry sense, we have the pharmacies and, and the medical sector still being quite problematic with respect to the level of regulation. So there's a bunch of things that the government can do to actually Instead of getting the pencil out and writing a new rule, they can get the rubber out and, and, and take out a few. That will actually arm us better for the future. But I'll, I'll go back to access to capital. I'll go back to uh, making it easy. I'll go back to availability of staff. The last question I have is, what makes you different? What what makes that um, a 23-year-old, 20, was it? Uh, yep. Decide to go out of leave the army and go into business as opposed to anything else like what what about business look you know at 23 if i knew how hard it was going to be at times i don't know if i would have done it um one of the chaps i've enjoyed backing the most and these business didn't didn't go well at all you know i cooked up about 630 grand but you know i was you know i fully respected what the the, the two founders in that business did um they left nothing on the table if you know what i mean so that i've, I've got no ill will at all but i remember once when he was pivoting the business quite hard he wasn't pivoting. He was adding a new, he was adding a new plank to his strategy, I suppose, and not not discarding with the others. And I'm like, do you have any idea what that's going to take? And he goes, you know, I've found that before you start something like this, you've got to thoroughly underestimate it and ignore it all. <laughs> so, um, and his business is just hard. You know, if you don't want to, if you want an easy life, don't get in the business. If you just don't want to, have to think, don't get in the business. Um, but it, it's it's exceptionally rewarding. It, it's you know, and it's the way that you can change the world. It's one true way that you can change the world. A lot of people can change the world, for example, they become priests or politicians, right? Um, but, you know, so for politicians, you know, it's hard to get into and it's also, it's really hard to do things and you've got to compromise too much. With the business, you get to set your own way, you get to you get to employ people, you get to, you know, provide a product that people want. If they don't want it, you'll go broke, so you'll, you'll, you'll have to either go broke or change that. So I, I regard enterprise uh, entrepreneurship as, as, as a, one of the highest callings and endeavours in a free society. I hope you enjoyed that interview. More interviews are on the way. Follow the podcast wherever you're listening right now. Stay tuned for more interviews with many, many more amazing people from the Australian startup ecosystem. Thanks for listening and see you next time.